0: We are in the 13th chapter of Ezekiel, beginning at verse 17. So here's where we are uh, in this um, this sermon series. And so I'll read this, and then we'll, uh, we'll begin to unpack it in the sermon. And I lost my place. That's because I'm in the wrong chapter. There we go. And you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts. Prophesy against them and say, thus says the Lord God. Woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley, for pieces of bread putting to death souls who should not die, keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands with which you hunt the souls like birds, and I will tear them from your arms. I will let the souls whom you hunt go free, the souls like birds, your veils also. I will tear off and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall be no more in your hand as prey. And you shall know that I am the Lord, because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him, and you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life. Therefore, you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord indeed, and we say thanks be to God. So Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 17, of course, uh, as I just read, is, is where we start this morning. He says, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts. What we're dealing with, in a sense, I'm going to qualify this in a moment, are, we, we dealt with false prophets last time. Now these are false prophetesses, prop, yeah, uh, the, the plural of prophetess, uh, that is uh, prophets who are women. And I, I, in preparation for this sermon, I really wrestled with with how much to go into that aspect of things. Clearly, this is addressed to women. The previous one was addressed to men. On the one hand, the text addresses it. And then this larger question, of course, comes in that if you have the existence of women who are prophets, how does that influence things like uh, the office of elder today and the office of pastor today, and whether those offices are for men only or for men and women. And I, I, I thought for a long while uh, uh, kind of whether or not and then to what extent to go into that conversation. On the one hand, the text does, the text opens up this conversation to us, <laughs> but on the other hand, I am not convinced that's the point of the text. And so I don't want to spend all morning here because, again, I, I, I don't think that's Ezekiel's point. But I do want to talk to you for at least a few minutes about some aspects of how, um, how the way the Lord has ordered creation in terms of male and female affects the way we order things in the church. A particularly important conversation to have today, I think. And so let's talk about who Ezekiel has in view here. Um, but Sorry, before we do that, let's just talk about this, what we might call the office of prophetess in, in general. There are a few examples in the Old Testament of women engaging themselves in the gift of prophecy, but it is rare, okay? So there, there are a few examples. I'm going to put this up here, by the way, because I am, I'll be honest with you, I am concerned about being misunderstood. So I'm just going to, we're, we're going to take a couple of kind of old-fashioned slides this way so that I'm not misunderstood and that this, this part's especially clear. So a few examples, but it's rare. One example would be Moses' sister, Miriam, whose prophetic work seems to be mostly confined to a song in Exodus 15, which really is kind of interesting if you think about it. Immediately that says to me this act of prophecy is probably bigger than we and we think of it. Uh, and, then, and then a condemnation when she actually opposes Moses in Numbers 12. And so we have, she, she sings this song after Israel's delivered from the, uh, from the hand of Egypt and the Red Sea, uh, but then later in Numbers she opposes uh, Moses and actually is struck with leprosy for it. You also have the probably uh, examples with which you're a bit more familiar in the Old Testament of Deborah and the less familiar one perhaps of Hulda in Judges 4 and then in Second Kings 22. These examples do seem to be women who rise up to lead because the men around them are cowards. Right? So if I would invite you to look at those at those texts, you, you do see the the men who are present in those texts who are charged in one way or another to lead Israel are at best deficient in their duty. Okay, And so uh, this, this reflection I've also gathered from John Calvin uh, who he, he makes this, he broadly applies it, I would say, I would qualify it most of the time. Most of the time, female prophets in the Old Testament existed whenever God wished to brand men with a mark of shame as strongly as possible. Furthermore, let me make one more point, that the title Prophetess. If you'll go to the next one, please. The title prophetess as such is not clearly defined or stressed, Old Testament or new, like as a distinctive office and what exactly does it entail. I would point out to you, it's not even used in Ezekiel, at least not here. So if you'll go back to our uh, text in verse 17, against the daughters of your people who prophesy. Okay? So the word prophetess doesn't actually appear in our text this morning. It's just a, it is in part a conclusion that uh, you, can, you, can, you can make. It, it's possible, but it's almost like Ezekiel's trying to make this distinction, okay? Uh, daughters who prophesy. So then let me, uh, again, let me uh, kind of while we're talking about this, while this is on the coffee table in the living room, uh, let me share with you something else. And that is, can you go to the next one, please? Uh, in terms of pastors and teachers today. So Grace Church is a congregation in the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which, if you didn't know, the EPC does allow women to be pastors and ruling elders in some places. Okay? So it's, it's determined by presbytery, to make a very long, kind of complicated explanation short. Um, Even so, by the voice of the session and by the voice of this congregation in our bylaws, this church has historically affirmed that the office of elder and deacon are offices that should only be held by qualified men. And so if you wonder, well then, if that's the case, why are we in the EPC? The short answer is that denominations, just like local churches, are always imperfect and are always a mixture of sin and righteousness. So why are we in the EPC? Because the EPC, for, for its faults, where they're, where, wherever they are, it's the best place for us to be in today. Also, when it comes to denominations, let me say this. A measure of reliable accountability in an imperfect organization is far better than the illusion of purity without any accountability. I'm going to say that again because it's really important to me that you understand this. A measure of reliable accountability within an imperfect organization is far better than the illusion of purity without any accountability. There are churches where a pastor can function like a pope where what he says goes and he's accountable to no one. And what I can tell you about those kinds of structures in churches is things are very efficient, typically. Stuff gets done quickly. Okay? Okay. If one man has most of the power and is functionally unaccountable, the, the upshot is you can get a lot done really fast. And in our Western culture where we confuse doing with being and where we confuse accomplishments with faithfulness, it feels really good to get a lot done without any bureaucracy standing in your way. Any headaches of that sort. For my part, I would always rather be in an imperfect structure that gives reliable accountability. That I'm a man under authority and I have to answer to someone. And if you have any further questions about that, I would love to talk to you about it sometime as to why we have a Presbytery, a General Assembly, all that kind of stuff, right? So, but then let me get back to our conversation. Why this distinction that we make in the church and in the home as well, by the way. So let me say this. This distinction we make that the office of, of teaching in the church is open to qualified men is not because... We believe that all men are capable and healthy leaders while all women are incapable of healthy leadership. Okay, That's not what we believe. And if you've ever heard it explained that way, I'm trying to distinguish us from that. Second, um, it is... Oh, sorry, that's, that's, that's the point I want to stress. Rather, it is because we believe that men in the church and in the home always lead by their good works or by their sins, by their action or by their inaction, by their presence or by their absence. If a father is absent and distant from his family and avoiding his responsibility, he is still leading. It's just not in a good direction. And that when men fail to lead, we would say that they're sinning. When that failure persists, we see this in Scripture and in practical life as well. Women do tend to move forward and fill the gap, and this is, humanly speaking, a pragmatic and effective solution. But it has its own consequences insofar as it's opposed to God's created order. It'll be, it'll be better functionally to have somebody leading, yes, but it'll often bring its own challenges and complications, okay? So where do we get this idea from? Well, there, briefly, I'm going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, and here's his reasoning. Oh, sorry, rather she to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that there is an order to creation that we attempt to reflect, sorry. Uh, yeah, can you go to the next one? Mm-hmm that we attempt to reflect. There's an order to creation because that's where Paul goes, the order of creation. Man was created first, then woman. And we attempt to reflect this created order in the way we organize and constitute ourselves as a church. In other words, God did not create everything at once, right? So it, it, God didn't just say, world, be created, and boom. There was, I mean, everything, right? You have this, this structure in Genesis, right? It goes through these six days of creation and so on. So there's, there's an order to this. We, and, and what Paul includes is that man was created first and then woman. We continue to make that created order visible by what we call covenant headship in the home and in the church. So there's an order as well to the fall. That, the, that Eve's failure was being deceived and that Adam's failure was his silence, his failure to act. In other words, we use this distinction between man and woman as an excuse to say something more about our God and Savior. It's, it's very much like Paul's illustration of marriage in Ephesians 5. Basically, Paul is saying, use marriage as an excuse to show people how loving Jesus is and how much his church loves him, right? That's, I mean, that's, Paul is like, marriage now becomes your excuse to say, look at Jesus, right? Okay? And so, in the same sense, we are using created order to say something about our Creator. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, which is like, okay, but pastor, do you really think like any of the reasons why things are this way is because of like personality? Is it personality-based? You know, is it because men are just better at something than, than women? And I would say there are distinctions between men and women. It'd be good for us to affirm those distinctions. And those distinctions can vary like according to personalities, all right? Um, And so so you have that generally, broadly, things are true of men but not every man. Generally, broadly, things are true of women though maybe not every woman in every situation. My own observation, let me offer you this to think about and if it makes you mad, think about it later. (laughs) My own observation it is generally harder for men to confront women than for women to confront men. And if you disagree with me on that, that's okay. This is my own observation. What I'm saying is A very unhealthy pattern in marriage is a pattern where husbands fear their wives, where they're afraid of them. And some of the most unhealthy church environments can take root because pastors and elders are afraid of the women in their churches. And if you are right now thinking, but what about abusive situations, huh? In homes or in churches? I completely understand why you're going there. And I would say, yeah. That's evil. I would only offer that we all agree on that. Like, if there's an abusive situation in play, everyone in this room is going, that's bad, that's really bad, that's really dangerous, that's really awful. But, but, when men fear, so, so let me rephrase this. If, if, if women in a church or in, in the home fear the men in their lives, we say, that's evil. When men fear women, we smirk and say, just keep her happy. Sometimes. Oh. <laughs> Sometimes. Now, my fear, my, to be honest, my fear in starting the sermon this way is some of you I've lost for the rest of the morning. <laughs> okay? You won't hear anything else I have to say. If that's you, ask the Lord to help you. Whether it's just to kind of put, it, put what I said to the side until you can kind of cogitate on it for a little bit. And then get in touch with me later in the week. We can sit down and talk. And if if I've made a misstep, and you want to show me that misstep, and I'll own it, and I'll apologize and ask for your forgiveness. Because I have tried to make a distinction between what the Scripture says and how I'm choosing to apply some things as best I can see. So I would say if something frustrates you right now and you're mad at me, write it down so then you don't have to be mad about it anymore. You can just put it in your pocket and think about it later. Okay, And then come and talk to me this week. I promise I won't be afraid of you. So let's talk about our text then, shall we? Let's go to verse 17, return to where we were, I think is the next one, right? Well, maybe. 18, 18. all right, sure, let's go to 18. I like that one too. Okay, verse 18. So after telling Ezekiel, uh, set your face against the daughters of your people, they prophesy out of their own hearts the same condemnation given to the previous false prophets. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists, making veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Okay, so what what's happening here? I mean, it's kind of weird. It kind of throws you at first. Probably something about magic bands on their wrists and veils for their heads. And what's going on here? Quite obviously, what we've got here is, is some kind of witchcraft, some kind of use of magic in the traditional ancient sense of the word, which historically, the use of magic in this sense has three elements to it, okay? Number one, the promise of control over the visible by manipulation of the invisible. So control over visible things in nature or in people by invisible supernatural forces. Number two, obsession with objects endowed with power, which I think is what we're seeing here. And number three, using um, plants or drugs or medicines to sustain inner peace or religious experiences. As a side note, the, word for which, the Greek word for witchcraft in the New Testament is pharmakia, from which we get the word pharmacy. That's a different sermon. But what's this? Magic bands and, and on the wrist and veils over the head. Short answer, we have no idea. <laughs> every commentary that I've looked at, every commentator I've gone to says, we do not know what Ezekiel is talking about. Probably something like, I mean, again, this is sort of consensus of commentators here. Probably something like, wear this band and it will protect you from judgment. Right? Because that's been the theme so far that God is saying, my people don't believe my words when I say judgment is coming. Or number two, and number two, probably something like, wear this veil and it will protect you. Probably a veil could also, you could also translate the word necklace so it might be in a, something on your wrist or around your neck, but, but again, I think veil is a good translation. So what, what, what do we know? We do know that these false teachers uh, were targeting the weak and shaming the strong targeting the weak and vulnerable and shaming the strong. How do we know that? Well, it says they're hunting for souls, hunting down the souls, belonging to my people. You remember back in verse 17? Say to your people that they're hunting my people. Right? Don't miss that. Then in the next verse, what are they doing? Profaned me among the people for handfuls of barley. So whatever work they're doing of of deception, they're doing it for, for cheap, for very little putting to death souls who should not die, keeping alive souls who should not live, by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Notice there that the that the, the guilt is, is placed both on the false teachers and those who believe them. Did you know it's a sin to believe in lies? It's a sin to believe in lies. So we have to always be pressing for pleading with the Lord for discernment. And what comes out in this verse here is that these... These, these women are killing the innocent and protecting the guilty. Put, the, whatever their teaching is, putting to death souls that should not die, keeping alive those that should not live. And just a brief reflection on that. False teachers always want their critics silenced and their fan clubs multiplied. Okay? Want their critics silenced and their fan clubs multiplied. I'll have you know that on the retreat this past uh, week and and weekend, I disagreed with the other elders. I mean, all all three of the ruling elders at least one time. And we had it out right there in a friendly and brotherly way. I mean, we had to get treatment for the bruises afterward. But no, no, I mean, we were just able to have the conversations and and just put it on the table. I think you're wrong about that. Okay, why do you think I'm wrong about that? This is why. Okay, well, this this is what I'm trying to say. I think you misunderstood me. There was all that, and it was good. It was good, trying to really get a sense of, of, of what, is this, what is this direction that we want to move in together. And so I, I want you to know that it's not my goal. For instance, when it comes to things like the session and the eldership of this church, I don't want a bunch of yes-men on the session. Okay? I want at least one person who I know is going to disagree with me on lots of stuff for good reasons. Yeah, yeah, Bobby Wade. It's you, Bobby. It is. <sighs> I believe in Presbyterianism, we call that the buck elder. <laughs> and that's good. It's good. I want to be able to rely on you for those things. And so what we see, find out in a, a further verse, this is a then in, go to the next one, please. Yeah, this is a bit later. but it, So he's, he's still charging them. He says, you've disheartened the righteous falsely, but I haven't grieved him. You've encouraged the wicked that he shouldn't turn from his evil way to save his life. What you discover about Christians, if you're not a Christian, what I want you to discover about Christians, if you don't already know, is that Christians at their best, when we're at our best, we have broken hearts over uh, when, when, when people around us take evil things and call them good or good things and call them evil. At our best, That causes us to weep before it causes us to rage. Why does this matter? Why does this distinction of what's going on, you've you've basically exalted evil and tried to silence righteousness. What's the result? Go to the next one, please. This is back up in verse 20. Behold, I am against you. I'm against your magic bands with which you hunt the souls like birds. I'll tear them from your arms. I'll let the souls who you hunt go free. He has this metaphor, this, this image of, of releasing them like birds. Our God cares about something that is not important enough to us all the time, and that is that He not only be known, but that He be known rightly and as He truly is. When Christians respond to false teaching. When Christians respond to false teaching in our day, sometimes the reaction we get is, why do you care so much about that? What business is it of yours? What somebody else talks about or believes or how they live their life. And I'm going to offer this to you. If you're not a Christian, please try to understand us. If we don't, we hate our neighbors. That's the only conclusion the Bible allows us to take. Because we believe that false teaching, like a monster, devours people, devours our neighbors, and that false teachers spread ideas and philosophies and theologies and doctrines that destroy our neighbors slowly in this life and in the next. And the world's response to that is it doesn't really matter what someone believes, so long as those beliefs do not obviously harm their neighbors in the present. That's kind of how our world works in terms, of, in terms of kind of morality and situational ethics. that it, what, Whatever you want to do is fine as long as it doesn't hurt others uh, in the present, obviously. And we, we are tempted to believe that because, generally speaking, that's how we treat ourselves. Like, it's okay for me to do something as long as I don't get hurt. Christians believe, though, that our community is covenant-bound. It's why membership includes promises that we make to each other. It's why when somebody gets baptized, we make promises to each other. And what that means to be covenant-bound together is, in a sense, it's really bad news at first because it means that my sins affect you in a thousand different imperceivable ways. And your sins affect me in a thousand different imperceivable ways. So could you stop? (laughs) But we also believe that the good works we do affect each other in a thousand different ways imperceivable ways. The prayers that we pray when we plead for God's mercy and anoint the sick with oil transform one another in a thousand different imperceivable ways. That preaching and sacraments transform and strengthen us from the inside out in a thousand different imperceivable ways. And above all, knowing God, this God most spectacularly revealed to us in Jesus is the reason why we exist and when we look around at a, at a world and a culture consumed by identity confusion, by fear and insecurity, consumed by anxiety and depression and political rage, we say with tear-filled eyes and broken hearts, how could our world be any other way when we rebel? How could it be any other way And that's not the same as we told you so. It's heaven have mercy. What else else did we think was going to happen? Because if you cut a flower away from its root, it'll look pretty at first, but it'll start to wilt over time. And so when false teaching is before our eyes and before our ears, we do, yeah, we do speak against it. We speak against it loud enough for others to hear even if the false teaching might seem harmless, okay? Even if it might seem harmless, if it is false teaching that is opposed to Jesus and opposed to His kingdom, I go to John Calvin once more who says this. He says, Since the duty of teaching is assigned to God's servants, so they're appointed as His avengers and defenders of the doctrine of which they are heralds. Hence, if, so to speak, flees, we're to come out of the earth and rail at sound doctrine. None who are influenced by a desire of edification. No one who loves their neighbors will hesitate to contend even with the fleas. Right? So we'll pick fights with the bugs if the bugs start saying Jesus isn't Lord. Now, I understand if you take from that. Well, couldn't kind of a, an arrogant spirit come from that? Or couldn't you justify an arrogant spirit with that, that nitpicks everything that comes across, <laughs> comes across your Facebook feed. Yeah, yeah, you could. You've got to take that seriously. What I'm trying to say is that while this kind of commitment to ourselves and to each other might at first appear to be petty or even arrogant, please understand that while our responses, while Christianity's responses to false teaching in the world might be... Occasionally, frequently seasoned with sin, regrettably. We can't not speak. Not if we love our God. As He's revealed to us in the Scriptures, not if we love our neighbor who's made for communion with that God. And so here God says to Ezekiel, I will not allow these false teachers anymore to distort who I am to my people and what I have said to them. Speak against them, Ezekiel, because I'm opposed to them. I will put an end to them. And when we read that, we say, even as we plead for humility, we will therefore be faithful to speak. And this will sometimes look like hate to the world. It will look intolerant. And it will look culturally regressive. It will sometimes look outdated, if you like. It will sometimes even look foolish. And sometimes that's because it's mixed with sin, right? Sometimes that's why it looks foolish, because we mix it with sin. And whenever that happens, let me admonish you, Christian repent louder than you screech. Okay? Repent louder than you screech about something. And I will freely acknowledge that in a lot of places American evangelicalism screams its political persuasions and whispers its repentance. God forgive us. We're called to love our neighbor. Called to love our neighbor. And that means we do not and we cannot cheerfully tolerate the ways in which our neighbor avoids, ignores, curses, or blasphemes the fount of all life. Not if we love our neighbor. If a bus is barreling down the road towards you, headed straight for you, and you say, I don't believe buses are real. There comes a point where I tackle you. If I love you. If I don't, any rational man would have to conclude that I hate you. You see, our God compels us, drives us toward our neighbors, and says the greatest threat to your life are the lies you're tempted to believe. Look at what God says. These false teachers are saying again. Can we go there? Oh, sorry. Yeah, because though you've disheartened the righteous falsely, I have not grieved him. Right? You've encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life. That's why we oppose false teaching. Because, go on to the next one, please. Yeah, back to verse 19. Because, we read, you are putting to death souls who should not die. Why? Because by your lying, they're listening to lies. These were hunting for people, hunting for people, seeking to control them, seeking to influence them. Remember that people who are living in Jerusalem right now and people who are living in Babylon have got to be terrified. One exile had already happened. They're terrified and another one's coming. They are... Likely, even in the midst of their idolatry, which is rampant, and their sin, which is multiplied, and their rejection of God, which is clear, they're probably traumatized, wounded, scared. In other words, they are extraordinarily vulnerable to lies. We oppose false teaching because it targets the weak and gives strength to the wicked. Some of, you knows, some of you know what happens when false teaching takes hold of a person who for one reason or another, because of one trial or another, because of one difficulty or another, are very weak and vulnerable. Maybe they've encountered a lot of pain and suffering. Maybe they are especially lost or lonely or vulnerable. Or maybe they're just spiritually bored. When false teaching takes a hold of someone in that situation, what it does is it gives them a renewed sense of purpose and stability and hope. And do you know how powerful that is? It becomes like a binding around their arms or like a veil in front of their face. Right, They can't even see it and they can't break free from it. And helping people find their way out of false teaching requires more patience than you've got or that I've got in our flesh. One thing that came up on the, on the retreat again and again is that in the history of our, of our church, many of you have, have seen grace almost like a hospital for, for people that have been wounded by false teaching and by false teachers. Uh, we also talked about another metaphor that's common in the New Testament. The church is a gymnasium where, the, where people are trained up in the word and, and by the gospel to be strong and, and confident in what they confess. And, and so it is that we want to cultivate that here once more and again and again, that, that this is a place where people can come and receive the medicine. you know in church history that the Lord's Supper was often talked about like it was medicine? Medicine for the faithful, restore spiritual health I love that so much I actually you know, this is kind of pastor nerdy but I actually bought like a doctor's black bag to do communion visitation I just couldn't resist the imagery okay it's me- like this, this spiritual medicine that God gives us to keep coming we keep coming again and again to the table because we keep needing to be restored and healed and strengthened and encouraged and the Lord Jesus meets us here and says yes I'll do it again and again and again so I said, As I conclude this, I want you to know that that God's voice of judgment, which we hear pretty often in this portion of Ezekiel, is always the loudest for people telling lies and people buying into the lies. But for those who love the Lord their God, for those who love the Lord Jesus and long to love Him more, this this, this is the glory of the cross. Every time you hear the voice of judgment from Ezekiel... I want you to remind yourself that if you're in Christ, that voice has been silenced and all you hear is forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Come to me and repent so that you can be free. You see, because for those who know and love the Lord Jesus, you know that the Lord your God is the greatest hope you have because He's the one who silences and brings an end to the lies. Verse 23. That's the conclusion of this uh, of this chapter. You shall no more see false visions or practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand. And so this is, that, that's, that's a whisper of what Jesus shouted from the cross. I will deliver my people out of your hand. Right? He says it to to. To the devil, he says it to death itself. I will deliver my people out of your hand. And he gives us this promise of his unconditional, never-failing, persevering protection. That doesn't mean that he shields us from everything that might hurt or sting. It means nothing that hurts or sting can kill us. All it can do is take us to Jesus. Because our Lord Jesus... Just as, the, just, as, just as God says through Ezekiel, He says, You are wounding My people. You're taking advantage of the innocent ones. You're exalting evil. Jesus Christ came as the truly innocent, vulnerable sufferer so that we could be, number one, unashamed of our weakness, but also unashamed of our strength, which to the world, by the way, looks like weakness. And so Jesus dignifies this, what to the world seems so counterintuitive. Even, he dignifies even grief and rejoicing, not as ends in themselves, but the things that drive us back to him. And so I just close with two questions to consider as we move to the table and as we move out of here today to serve our neighbors. What are the things that grieve you? Are they the things that grieve your God? Ask those two questions. What are the things that scare you? Has God given you permission to be afraid? Has He? What are the things that cause you to rage? Has God Himself said that vengeance is His? And are you resting in that? Where are those whom you can love, even at some great cost to you? And so we go out not simply with the burden of a law. I don't want you to leave only with that. But with the confidence that this is simply how forgiven people live. Filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore gloriously unafraid. And so let it be said of us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Our Father, we thank you uh, for these words from Ezekiel which remind us that false teaching can drive us to death, takes advantage of the weak and vulnerable, makes righteousness look like evil, makes evil look like good. And so we plead that you would, by your words and your own Holy Spirit, make us a wise and discerning people who love you and who long to see people love you for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the nations, and even for their very own sake, that they would love you and rejoice in the King who has saved them. As we come to this table today, Lord, we pray that you would refresh our hearts, cause us to remember that as we take and receive you, body and blood, that you would strengthen our faith, steady our hearts, and fit us for your service in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.